going to talk about the sound of victory versus death's silence. For those who love the Hebrew teaching, I'm going to put up a couple of words, and um, they can put up the first verse for me, Ephesians 1 verse 18. And we're going to do this in the New Living Translation, purely because it, one of the verses, it puts something in there which is not found in the majority of Bibles, but I believe this is an accurate translation in that sense. So let me just add the Hebrew words. Okay, I'm going to start with this one. So we have the shepherd's crook. It indicates that we control something. We have sharp teeth. It indicates that we are crushing something or destroying something, and it indicates death. We have a seed. It is activity and life. So this is a control of death and life. This word here is tongue, is lashon. So your tongue is a thing that controls death and life. And this is the Hebrew word for it. So the next one I want to put up. So we have the dalet, the door, and we have the nun. The door is to control access to life. So this controls access to life, or it releases life, or it restores life. This word is dan, which is translated to mean judge. We have an English word that comes from this. The dean of a faculty. So it comes from this. Okay. So this is to judge. Now clearly we can see that when we judge, it is not to be taken as a negative thing. We restore life. That is what judging is about. So when we use our tongue, interesting, the last thing that comes out of the tongue is life. When we judge, we speak life. When we pray, that is the mouth. So the lamet is the shepherd's crook and it's to control. So now we use our mouth to control. And that is pray. This is also sometimes spoken as palal. It is also used for the word judge. When Phineas stopped the plague, when he prayed, that word palal is he judged. And the last one, again the mouth, this is the gimel. It's a picture of a foot, but the gimel means to raise something up. Now, when we raise up our mouth, this first part actually means unripe fig, indicating that it cannot perform what it was supposed to perform. An unripe fig cannot produce what it's supposed to do. The ayan is to see or to experience, to have an expectation. So when we have an expectation that this is going to change, this word is to intercede. And we can see that we can change even an unripe fig to something better by praying. So by raising our mouth up, by raising up our words to God, we can change it. Okay, let's get to the New Testament. I pray that your heart will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope. So we have a hope. That's the first thing we see, that we have a hope. That was given to those he called his people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So we have an inheritance. Now, by reading other translations, 
we get an indication that the hope that we have is that this inheritance is actually inside of us. So this is our hope. We have this inheritance in us. Next verse. And he's speaking about the greatness of God's power. That this same, very same power, next verse, that he used to raise Christ up from the dead and seated him in a place of honor on God's right hand in the heavenly realm. Now, the heavenly realm is an unseen realm just surrounding us. It is not a place far off. Because the Bible says that heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. So it is something here. It's right here. It's with us. This is where the heavenly realm is. Next verse. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. So it's forever. He has now placed him far above any other authority, any other power, any other name. Next verse. So he talks about all things that was put under his foot. So he says, God has put all these things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all these things. So he's talking about all the authorities, all the powers, and all the names, even the names that can be called in the ages to come. He's already placed him above that. And here is the kicker in this verse. For the benefit of the church. So Christ was placed in this position of authority. For what reason? For the benefit of the church. Not for his own benefit. It's for the benefit of the church. See, if we don't tap into that benefit that we have, we're going to lose out. This is the benefit that I want to talk about. Jesus was raised to that position above everything forever for our benefit. Um, we can go to the next verse, but basically the next verse says, because he raised him and he seated up with him in the heavenly places. Now, here's a mindset that we have to change. If Christ is the head of the church, head of the body, the body and the head cannot be disconnected. So if Christ is seated in this position, far above everything, where is the body? We must be with him. Now, just think about this. If we have God on his right hand, we have Jesus. This is our mental picture. And we have Jesus seated next to God, and now we have us seated there. That's a wrong picture. We are not seated next to him. We are seated in him. He is our foundation. If you build on a foundation, you don't build next to it. The foundation is there. You build on it. So if Jesus is our foundation, we are on him. We are seated on top of him where he is seated. We are co-seated. So Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, God raised up Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have other verses in Romans 8 verse 32 where he goes and he, and he explains that, okay, so we have all of this authority. And exactly what, what Jacob was now talking about, the slave mentality, which we find in Luke 15 verse 22. When Christ raised us up and he gave us all of this authority, he placed us in this position of full authority over everything. We could still have a mentality of saying, okay, so I'm been placed in this, but this is only for the age to come. This authority that I have will one day be exercised after Christ has come back, and we can postpone it, and we do not use this. 
Now, in Romans 8 verse 32, Paul says that if God has given us Christ, will he not freely give us all other things? Now, we need to understand that this authority that we have is in order for us to achieve these other things because we have to speak it. I want to consider this, this story. The youngest son, when he was in this far-off country, he made a decision. He was sitting there, probably a Hebrew boy, probably a teenager, because only teenagers have the wisdom to tell their parents, I want all that's mine and I can do a better job than you. And he goes to the far-off country to go and prove to his father that he can do a better deal than what his father could do. So now he's squandered everything, he's lost everything, he's got nothing left. And now he joins himself to a citizen in that, that country who sends him out to feed the swine. Now for a Hebrew boy, he's not allowed to eat pork because it's unclean. And it's unlawful for him to even keep them. But this is his job. So he's now in a position where he now wants to actually eat the food that they are eating. Now, this is what sin does to you. Sin is not your friend. Sin does not support you. Sin breaks you down. If people use drugs, where do they end up? Quite often we see a picture of before and a few years later. It doesn't take long. They've lost their teeth. They've lost their appearance. They've lost everything. This is where sin takes you. That's where it leads you to. It takes you to the uttermost pit. Now, this is where this boy was. And in his heart, this is the way Andre reads it. In his heart, he thought to himself, here's my father. Here's my brother, and that's the position that I had. Here's his servants. Here I am, right down there. In my father's house, even the servants have enough. So I'll go back to my father and I'll tell him that I have sinned against heaven and in his eyes. And I'm not worthy to be called his son anymore. And I'm going to plead at his grace to at least elevate me from here to servant status. Can you at least elevate me? And this is what I'm going to plead. This is my plan. I'm going to plead to my father, make me a servant. At least that's much better than what I'm now. So he goes back to the father. The father sees him approaching. And the father runs, hugs and kisses him. And then the previous verse, verse 21, the son says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And then the father interrupts him. But, he butts in. He says, but, the father said to his servant, quick, quick, don't let him finish his story. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. That best robe is the righteousness of Christ because it comes from the Father. It covers all his sin. He does not need to do anything anymore. And then he gives him a ring, which is a sign of his authority. That ring would typically be a seal ring, carrying the emblem of the family. So now he can do business on behalf of the family. He has the same authority as the Father in signing deals, in doing deeds, because the Father has given him a ring. But what is in his heart? Is he still thinking of himself of, I'm not worthy? I'm still a servant. I cannot do this. He's justified. He's righteous. He has the ring of authority. He has the, the new shoes on, so his walk has to change. But what is in his heart about using this authority? He opens the rope and he smells himself. I still smell. I still have a bad odor in me, so I can't use this authority, even though the father has given it. The eldest son was very upset when he heard what was going on. 
And the father goes and he talks to him and he says to him, but everything that I have is yours. Now, Paul, in Galatians 4 verse 1, Paul gives a beautiful answer, which I think is tied to this older son. He says to him, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. As long as he's a child, ready for a bit of Greek. So there's a Greek word. I'm writing it more or less phonetically or the way you would. Naipios. Naipios is two words, two Greek words. Nay, to negate. So it's saying whatever the next one is, you're not the next part. Epos, to speak, not speaking. Let's read it again. What I'm saying, as long as the heir is not speaking, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. You see the key? As long as he's not speaking. So the key comes in, we have to speak out. We cannot keep quiet. We can have a look at 1 Chronicles 11, verse 10. I'm going to park this idea, not speaking. Remember, I had this, Lashon. We have to speak. We have to judge. So we have to restore life. This is part of what it is. So let's look. In Chronicles, we have a record. Now, the few verses above this. David, the king, is just taken in the city of Jerusalem, and he's built himself a castle. So he's king, and he's got a castle, and he's got a city. And now the Bible mentions his mighty men, and he says, these were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all of Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land, as the Lord God had promised. Verse 12. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men. Now, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 11, we see more or less the same story, and there he talks about one of the other mighty men, Shaman. Now, let's go to verse 13, and we see he was with David at Pas Damim. Pas Damim, Pas means palm of your hand, Damim, bloodshed. So it's the place where the hand, the palm of the hand, caused a lot of bloodshed. This is where he was with David. When the Philistines gathered there for battle, at a place where there was a field full of barley, and some other translation says, all the troops, other says, all the people, fled from the Philistines. That gives me an idea. This army of the Philistines was more than one man, perhaps more than two, because everybody fled. So this was a sizable army. I don't think it was thousands. It doesn't make sense to that it would be thousands. So let's just look at this field full of barley. A field full of barley. Barley is a grain that was cultivated for animal feed. And the poorest of the poor would have barley in their fields because it was not expensive. They could afford to sow barley. So they would have a field that they could sow barley in. So if the poorest of the poor had sowed this field, it would not be a very big field. Remember, this field could be defended by David and three of his men. So four men could defend this field. How large can it be? It could be for animal fodder. So it's not necessarily very big. What's the value of this field? Minor. 
it almost has absolutely no value. So it seems as if the king and three of his mighty men are trying to defend something that's not worth the effort. Everybody else decided, we'll run away. We're not going to defend this. We'll run. You can read the next verse. What happened? But they took their stand. Ephesians 6 verse 13 says, and after having done all to stand, stand. Does Ephesians 6 tell us about our armament? Yes. Does it tell us to go into a foreign land and attack it? No. Tells us to stand. When do we stand? Before the battle? During the battle? After the battle? Do we have an option? No. We have to stand. We have to stand at all times. Remember where we are seated. We have this hope, this inheritance, all power, all authority. We are seated there. This is where we're at. And now there's a battle. This is a principle. If I'm going to defend this area, I can only defend it if I'm already the possessor, if I already own this. What did Jesus achieve for us? Is there anything lacking? Nothing. Why would we go into a foreign land and go and attack something? By implication, we're saying, Jesus, you couldn't do it. Let me do this. Let me go and attack and achieve something. No. He achieved everything. That's why we have to stand. Because what he's given us, if we stand on that field that he's given us, it might be a barley field. It might seem insignificant. But we have to stand and fight. And how do we fight? Lashon, we speak. David and his men, yes, they fought with swords. They came to the battle physically. But this is not our battle. Now, if... If I can explain how the enemy will attack us. This field represents our ethical values. We have a censorship in our country, and they slightly, incrementally add more violence, more curse words, more nudity to the age of 13. And incrementally, we accept it. That's an attack. It's a personal attack. And they're subtly taking away our foundation. They're eroding our foundation because they're taking away bit by bit. Right now, there are laws that allow abortion the day before birth. But it didn't start at that. Where did it start? I will allow a mother to have an abortion if her life is threatened. And we all said, okay, that makes sense. Then they say, or if she's raped. Okay, that makes sense. Or this reason, or that reason, she can't afford to keep the child. Okay, that's a good reason. And eventually, they erode and erode and erode. You see what the enemy will do? Is he starts with your barley field. Next, he'll take your other grains. Then he'll take your olive trees. Then he'll take all your flock. And eventually, he comes from, for your house, and he takes away your house. And he takes away your wife and your children. And he takes away everything until you have nothing left. And then he takes away your religion. Your right to say the word of God in street. If we don't stand on our barley field and defend it, if he comes and we don't say no, we are quiet. What is going to happen to us if we are quiet? Okay, so this could be ethicals. What about dreams? So you have a dream. I want to become a nurse. And what does your friend say? You can't make it. You don't have the academics. Or you say, I want to become an engineer. Your father says, I don't have the money to take you to university. You might want to become a politician, and your friend says, 
You'll never make it. You don't have a criminal record. No offense, Chris. <laughs> so they take away your dreams. They take away your dreams. If you don't stand on your dream, what is going to happen to your future? Because it starts there. Remember this. The attack of the enemy is not the dream. The attack of the enemy is not the ethical. It's personal. He wants you. So don't think for a moment, it does not affect me. It does. The enemy comes for every one of us personally. Every one of us. If we don't stand on the simple principles, we'll fall for everything else. So we have to stand in our barley field. We have to defend our barley field. We can have a look at Deuteronomy 22. And while that comes up, let me ask this question. 40 days, Jesus was in the desert, and the devil tempted him for 40 days. We know of three temptations. How did Jesus win him? Word. 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 Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 6, and he says, now Paul was a preacher to the Gentiles, so this is for us. It's for us what Paul is writing. He says, there were some false believers who came into our midst to spy and to make some of us slaves. And I'm going to leave out a part because I don't want to give it away. And then he says, they were even leaders. He says, but I would not stand for it. And he ends off by saying, it did not matter to me that they were leaders. They did not add anything to my message. So this is what they were trying. They were trying to reintroduce circumcision to the Gentiles. Paul says, I'm not going to stand for that. You cannot add anything. That's the same tactic that the enemy has. As taking away something, he tries to expand on your foundation and he tries to add. And he says, okay, you are born again. Welcome to this family. But from now on, everybody has to wear a blue hat. We add something. And everybody complies. And they says, okay, woman, you have to wear your hair up tight. And they comply. And they add. Okay, woman, no more jewelry. And they add. It's not taking away. It's adding. It's adding. And Paul says, I'm not going to stand for that. I don't care if it was the leaders that said that. They will not add anything to our gospel. So we will not stand for it. We stand on the truth. Let's have a look. This is a nasty piece of text. Deuteronomy 22, 23. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin, let's put that, and she's pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her. Next verse. You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. How harsh is that? It was a virgin, a righteous person. In a city, let me put the word city here. Are we not the city? So it is a righteous person in the city who was attacked. And this scripture says, if, if that righteous person is attacked in your city, in your midst, take them outside and stone them. How harsh is that? Read on. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, so if you're silent, death is a sure thing. 
We cannot keep quiet if the enemy attacks your field because it is going to cause your death. And the man, because he violated another man's wife, and we must purge the evil from amongst you. Next verse. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a girl, pledged to be married, and rapes her. Other translations put that also as a virgin. And they say, she's in the field. Now, how many parables did Jesus speak? And he talks about a field, and he says, that's the world. So now we have a righteous person in the world. They're doing all things right. They're not breaking any laws. They're following everything, doing everything right. They're being attacked. One lesson here. Whether you're in the church or in the world, the enemy will attack you. You cannot go outside and think, now I'm on his team, he's not going to attack me. It doesn't matter to him. He's going to attack you either way. Next verse. Do nothing to the girl. How's that? Virgin in the city, quiet, kill her. Virgin in the field, do nothing to her. She's committed no sin deserving death. But neither do we think the first virgin in the city did. But now the virgin in the field gets off scot-free. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. Next verse has the answer. For the man found the girl out in the country, and although the betrothed girl screamed, there was no one to rescue her. You see, out in the world, people have trouble. Every day they go through issues. Even if they scream, there's nobody there to help them. If you're in the city and you're going through trouble and you scream out, first of all, you scream out to God. You call out to God. There's going to be help. If you don't call out to God, but you share your burden with those around you, they will pray for you. There will be something. Thirdly, if we praise God, there will be a solution. If we make a draw on the anointing, we will be rescued. In the city, if you call out, you will be saved. In the field, in the world, if you call out, there's nobody that helps them. They suffer on their own. You're getting something? So when we can't cope, Philippians 1 verse 19. Paul was in a condition where he needed assistance. And he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul says there's two things that is causing my circumstance to turn out for my deliverance. It is your prayers and the supply of the Holy Spirit. The supply of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4 verse 10 to 12, is for the perfection of the saints. That's why he gives apostles, teachers, prophets. It's for the perfection. So the supply of the Spirit is there for us. If there is a supply it means there's a storehouse. If there's a storehouse, it is your responsibility not to be silent, but to call out and put a demand. You have to place a demand on that storehouse. If you don't place a demand on the storehouse, you will die. This is a spiritual death first, but it leads to physical death. Let me explain. So the doctor comes with a report to you and say, you have early onset diabetes. And you think, well, that's fine. We can live with that. And you don't push it away. You think, it's minor. I can live with it. Then he says to you, this diabetes has now went further. And now you have arthritis. 
So your quality of life is falling away. Then he says to you, this has turned into dementia. And pretty soon, your physical life has been taken away from you. Why? Because you kept quiet when the first attack came. So you will die spiritually and physically if you keep quiet. So what is our option? Are we going to keep quiet? Not. Are we going to speak out? Of course. So Jesus said in Luke 4 verse 25 that there were many widows at the time of Elijah, but only one was helped, the one from Zarephath in Sidon. And he continues and he says, there were many lepers in the time of Elisha, but only one was helped, Naaman. Why were those two helped? Because they spoke out. Because they placed a demand on the anointing of the prophet. That is why they were helped. In Jesus' own ministry, in Mark 6 verse 5, he's in Nazareth. And the Bible says he could do very little miracles because they had no faith, because they did not place a demand on him. But then we read in Luke 6 that the whole multitude seek to touch him, and he healed all of them. So if you reach out your hand and you draw, you make a claim, you make a demand on the anointing, you would get your victory. In Mark 5, verse 34, there was a woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. And she reached out and she touched. And Jesus answered back and he said, your faith made thee whole. So it's because of her demand. It's the demand that we have. She had to speak out as well in her heart, but she had to do something, physical action. In Acts 5, verse 15, we see that the people in the city, they knew that Peter had an anointing on them. So they did something. They placed the sick on the street, knowing that when Peter walks past there and his shadow falls on them, they will have a demand on the anointing. They will draw on his anointing. They will pull on his anointing, and they will get healed. We have to place a demand. We have to speak out. And as I said, first of all, we speak out from the word that's in you. You quote the scripture to the enemy. If you don't know the scripture, go to another brother who's filled with the word. Let him speak a word over you. If you can't find them, we are, Shireen mentioned it this morning, we are standing under the anointing of Pastor John, Prophet John. The anointing is here. It is your duty to place a demand on that anointing. You cannot go out here. And this is the problem that a lot of Christians have. They are suffering. But you ask them how they are, what will they tell you? I'm fine. I'm fine. So they don't place a demand on the anointing. They don't place a demand on the word of God. They say, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm blessed. Everything is great. But it's not true. You know, the very first miracle that Jesus did at the wedding at Cana, did he go there to change the water into wine? Why did he do it? His mother placed a demand on him. There was a demand on him and he did his first miracle. So with that, I want to end off and I want to say, if you're sitting here today and you've been battling some issue and you've struggled and struggled and you've not had a victory you've not seen the hand of god move you've not overcome this issue perhaps it's an addiction that you just cannot break no matter how many times you resist it you cannot break it 
Maybe it is a, a sickness. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Maybe you need employment. Maybe it's a financial thing. But you have not had your breakthrough. And you have spoken out to God. I want to give you the opportunity. I'm going to call the elders forward. And they can stand here and they can minister to you. And we're going to have an anointing service tonight. And the opportunity will be there tonight as well. To place a demand on the anointing. If you fail to place a demand on the anointing, you are causing your own death. I don't want to labor this point and put a blame on you. I just want to say to you, the word is clear on this. It is for our benefit that Jesus received all of this power. If we don't place a demand on the benefit that we have in being his body, then who's to blame for our problems? Surely we have to take some accountability. I know we didn't attack ourselves. You know, if I stand here and all of a sudden I get a heart attack and I die, you know, surely I don't have enough time to now quote scriptures and quickly read something, but I'm in an anointed place. My expectation is that you will jump up and you will resurrect me from the dead. This is my expectation. Don't disappoint me. I'll come back and haunt each and every one of you. The list is at the door. You're all signed, I know. Shireen said she'll help me. If there's anybody that needs anything from God and you want to place your demand this morning, I want to call this opportunity and say, come forward. You know this lectern is known by another name. What's the other name for a lectern? For this lectern? Pulpit. You need to pull from me. You need to pull from the word of God. You need to pull from the anointing. Because this is where the pastor is pulling from every morning when he preaches. He pulls from the anointing. He pulls from the word of God. So come here. We have an opportunity. Father, we thank you for those miracles and healings and provisions that you have provided here today. Father, we we have an expectation for tonight. Father, we've heard the word. And when it sinks in now tonight, Father, we will come with an expectation, with a demand on the anointing. And we know that you will not disappoint. You've never let us down. So, Father, with that, I bless your people and I send them home. Tonight, come with an expectation. Come with a demand on the anointing. Don't, don't put it off for another day. Come with an expectation. You will receive. 